morning. My name is Bryce Holbrook. I've been pastoring for the last 15 years. I've been pastoring a small church in Horn Lake for the last 10. I'm glad you had me as your guest today. Next week, I'm going to bring up a word chart. You know, like one of those, what are they called, Blake? One of those word clouds? A word clouds. I'm going to bring up a word cloud of all the things that have been said to me so you can feel all the pain and that has been inflicted upon me over the last few days. Uh, so uh, I hope that if you're one that has trouble dealing with change that you can hear me speak today and it will be okay with you. Uh, today we're going to be starting First Peter, uh, this great letter in the New Testament. The title of our First Peter series is Born Again to a Living Hope, and today we'll look at an introduction into 1 Peter, from 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Let's read this today, and then we'll pray before we begin. 1 Peter, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for the way it's delivered to us the way it is ever-present, the way it gives us help in our time of need. It gives us peace and strength in our times of peace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to lean fast into, firstly, the word that is Jesus Christ, to trust in the foreknowledge and sovereignty of the Father and the sealing of the Spirit, and then as we do that, help us to lean into your word this morning and every day to grow in faith, to be brought more closely to the image of your son. Lord, help us as we leave Ecclesiastes, which was wonderful, and as we move into 1 Peter, which is going to be uh, equally wonderful, help us to realize how your word is congruent, how it has continuity all throughout the text, and how... It applies to our lives today and as long as we're alive. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We give you praise for anything that you're going to do from this. Help us to take your word, to let it be implanted in our heart, and to apply it to our lives today and forever. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If we look at 1 Peter uh, today, we're going to look at uh, 1 Peter as one of the most sacred and wonderful text of Scripture. We see that the author of 1 Peter is encouraging believers specifically to walk in faith in very difficult times. The audience of 1 Peter would have needed great encouragement, much like we do today. The letter was written to Christians who needed instruction and encouragement to live in a world where they were strangers and aliens. Peter, like most New Testament authors, is writing in a time where the readers would need much encouragement through their suffering and through their persecution. And 
also just the general circumstances of life. Peter tells us that our suffering and our troubles on this earth are actually, uh, actually work its way out to the glory of the Lord. Peter tells us that through the strength of the Lord, through the might of the Lord, that they are only temporary, and it's a way that God, uh, through our sufferings, is a way that God is even honored. The primary way that Peter encourages his audience is to remind them that their inheritance, their salvation is fixed, their salvation is sure, and their worth is certain. And that while their, tempor- while their trials and their tribulations are in their face and in the moment, they are only temporary. And through their salvation in Christ, they find the Father's grace and love and peace. First Peter is going to be great for us because there's a wide range of helpful topics discussed, but um, if we can take anything away from First Peter, it's the focus on Christ as the center of all a Christian's being. We need to be Christocentric people. Meaning that our focus needs to be on Christ. Our, our method of finding strength. Our method of finding hope. Our knowledge that we want to attain needs to be Christ first and then everything else a distant second. That Christ, through Christ we have a living hope and a final victory over sin and corruption. That through the precious, precious blood of Christ, we are brought to a living hope. That we are living stones. That we are building up the church from age to age until he returns. I hope that as we dive deeper in this letter, that the Spirit of God uses it to change us more into the image of the Son of God. And that we will be faithful to draw near to the triune God of all creation. Today we're going to look at the introduction of 1 Peter, and I have two sort of uh, overarching points and uh, then some practical things I think we can take away from them. Um, The first point is sort of going to be like starting my diesel truck this morning. I went out and I had to start it about a good 10 minutes before I was ready to come here, okay? So we're going to take a little bit of setup, and then once that diesel truck is warmed up, it's going to be running just fine, trust me. So the first point today is the author and the audience. The author and the audience. We find that in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The author of 1 Peter, I know this is going to shock you, it's Peter. Okay? It's Peter, an apostle of Jesus. Although this may seem easy and very clear for you and for me, some theologians have tried to dispute this. Now their primary reason for disputing um, Peter as the author of 1 Peter is that the language, the Greek language in Peter is written, as they say, too eloquently for Peter. Remember, what was Peter's background? Do you remember? He was a fisherman. And some people contest that a fisherman would not have had um, the knowledge or the ability to uh, know and write in this language. And there's two things I can say to that. Number one, the language is not so formal that it's out of the realm of possibility for Peter to have written that. The other thing is this. Have they not under, have people that question this have not understood that throughout history God honors the people that learn, that study, that find out for themselves. 
that figure it out without a teacher. As a matter of fact, it was one of the biggest compliments made of Jesus. How does he know these things that he knows? Uh, and how he, he doesn't have schooling. He doesn't have a background. And so I think, uh, I'm not really going to try to debate over this. And I don't think you should either. Uh, this is the holy text of scripture. Preserved by God himself written under the direction of the Holy Spirit. If the Lord chose to write 1 Peter 1 and say this, Peter, uh, this is Peter's infant child writing 1 Peter 1, I would say today to you this morning that, 1 Peter's, that Peter's infant child wrote 1 Peter 1. That's how I would believe it. That's how I would take it. Because I believe that God and his sovereignty and his power has perfectly preserved the scriptures for Christians throughout the generations. And so there's no reason for me to look for uh, extra doubt um, where I don't really believe any is to be found. Well, I think it's important, though, I, I, I think it's important to look and examine. There are difficulties in Scripture. There are difficulties in Scriptures. There are not contradictions. It is without error, but there are difficulties. Well, I think it's important to examine the difficulties in Scriptures. If we start saying, well, did Peter really write First Peter when the Scriptures say, Peter, an apostle of Jesus, I think we're maybe have a little bit too much time on our hands and maybe should figure out something else to do with that. So Peter, I know it's odd again, but I'll repeat it because it bears repeating. Peter, the apostle of Jesus, wrote 1 Peter. Uh, he wrote it around 62 to 63 A.D. Peter later tells us that he wrote this message from Babylon, but we know from history and context that Babylon is synonymous with Rome. So Peter is in Rome in the 60s AD, and he is writing uh, letters to the, to the churches. This is supposed to be sort of a letter that is sent on a loop. It's supposed to be sent around to the churches uh, of a certain area, and subsequently it's been sent to the churches. We have it, and that's amazing. Um, so Peter, Peter tells us he's in Rome, uh, 62 to 63 AD. This puts 1 Peter written under the reign of Nero Caesar who was a tyrant who likely became uh, emperor at 16 years old and who is said to have killed himself around the age of 30, but, you know, political assassinations and all. Uh, both Peter and Paul were believed to be executed under the reign of Nero Caesar. Nero was known as the first emperor to persecute Christians, and he did so with great zeal. <coughs> Nevertheless, Peter is writing to the Roman Christians who are and would be facing great persecution under the reign of the tyrant Nero Caesar and also under the reign of those who um, came after Caesar. So Peter calls himself an apostle here. This was the name given directly to the disciples after Pentecost, the, uh, the office of apostle. They were called disciples of Jesus in which the title of Jesus was not given to any other office in the church. It was not given to evangelist of Jesus, um, prophet of Jesus, apostle was given only to, apostle of Jesus was only given to apostle itself. So these were men called by Jesus to which the title apostle was given and it was given at Pentecost. Uh, it was confirmed at Pentecost. The words 
of the apostle then are to be seen as God's words, even, as the, even in the same way that we see the authority of the Old Testament prophets. So when Peter writes, we have 1 Peter, and we also have the word of God simultaneously. Do you understand that? It's not just the words of Peter. It's Peter's words inspired by the Holy Spirit from an apostle of Jesus. Therefore, they are the words of God. I must say something here that is vastly important. And about this, there is much more debate than who is the author of 1 Peter. The office of apostle is a closed office. It has ended. It does not exist in the same way that is described in, um, in the scriptures about Peter, about James, about John, about Paul. What I mean to say is this, that the first 11 disciples... And then subsequently Matthias, who was added for Judas, and Paul himself were the only apostles in the same way as Peter. So I believe that there's no longer the office of apostle in the church. To recognize someone as apostle would place their teachings on the same line as that of the New Testament writers. Therefore, adding to scripture, which is strictly forbidden. Now, there are people who are apostle-like. They have sort of a gifting that is similar to apostles. In that sense, they see their mission as starting new things. I think church planters, people who just plant churches, are sort of apostolic. Um, but there is no one who is an apostle in the sense that Peter was an apostle. Nobody in modern days. So if someone, or if you've been a part of a church that in the past that would claim that, or if someone that you know claims that, I have friends and, and acquaintances who, who claim that that is true. Um, it, it's not true. The, apostle, the office of apostle is close. To qualify, and here's the proof of this, <clears throat> to qualify as an apostle, one must both be an eye and ear witness to the resurrection and chosen by Christ himself. So Peter, the apostle, is writing this letter from Rome in the early 60s A.D., and to whom is Peter writing this letter? He is writing this letter to the Christians in Asia Minor. Specifically Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is likely a major Gentile audience, but there is also likely some Jews in this church. Um, where this these churches where this letter would have been passed around. Either way, these people would have been in great peril. Not only facing the persecution from Nero, but also facing the persecution from their Jewish and Greek neighbors in their social context. As with our faith now, they would have been ostracized from their culture. They would have been placed in the lowest position of the social hierarchy and really just been seen as outcasts. So there you are. There's a simple outline of the author and the audience of the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, now the engine is sort of warmed up, and we're ready to go into some really great and heavy theology. And Peter is super heavy into theology. It is a heavy theology book. Uh, theology just means, if, in case you don't understand that, is the, the study of God. The study of God. Peter uses the name of God compared to the size of the letter more than any New, or as much as any 
<coughs> New Testament book, if not more than most. Peter is heavy on the study of God. So it is no surprise that in verse 2 of his letter, the, the, the second real sentence of his letter, the people of God are getting a full dose of theology. And I've titled this second point, The Encouragement. What is the encouragement from 1 Peter chapter 2? Look at, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 2. <coughs> look at chapter 1, verse 2 really quickly. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Like I've already mentioned, Peter is writing to an audience that is currently and will face much persecution. The audience is expected it. And that's really the theme of the Bible too. That's the theme of the New Testament for sure. Uh, it's the theme of the Bible that God's people face outside persecution. They depend on the Lord for strength. They trust in him. They overcome that. There's still some sort of lingering level of persecution, but there's always the greater power of he that is in us than he that is in the world. One author put it this way about the persecution that these Gentile Christians would face. The Christians of Asia Minor were facing troubling times because of their faith in Christ. They were being persecuted through social ostracism, Slander and malicious talk undermine their relationships with associates and family, threaten their honor in the community, and possibly jeopardize their livelihood. The writings of the New Testament is filled with ways that Christians can face immense trials and persecution. And it isn't as if some people feel Christians sort of make martyrs out of themselves. This is actually true to life throughout history. Now, although our persecution, as it stands right now, is not as heavy as what the Christians in First Peter in Asia Minor face, it is not as heavy as what Christians are currently facing around the world, it is still... Uh, to be considered under this umbrella of persecutions. As a matter of fact, Christians, along with Jews, have been two of the most persecuted and are presently two of the most persecuted groups in all of history. But there is encouragement. Peter tells Christians in Asia Minor that they have something to be encouraged about. There is this comparison that is made in this group of verses in 1 Peter 1 and 2, and it's actually just... Beautiful. In verse 1, he calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, there are a couple of thoughts behind this. Elect exiles of the dispersion. Some people believe that his audience was Jewish Christians who were exiled to the Roman province. Um, this exile term is often used for Jews and the separation uh, from Jeru for, of Jerusalem or Jews from Jerusalem, excuse me, throughout all of the Old Testament. However, I and most other believes that this was Peter talking to Jewish, uh, Gentile Christians, likely with Jewish Christians mixed in, but Gentile Christians who are in Asia Minor. Now, how are they exiles? First, they would have come from likely a pagan background because that was their society. So they would have been involved in a multitude of sinful practices. Sin would have been so entrenched in their lives that to pull themselves out of that sin would have naturally exiled them from the social context that they had previously been a part of. Have you ever felt that way? Often their lives would have been, often their lives would have sort of made yours and mine, it sort of put, made our past, uh, put our past to shame. 
Because their culture was so dark and sinful, to be a Christian meant to be a social and political outcast, to be persecuted and possibly even killed. If you ever want to get angry with people, or if you ever want to get people angry with you, live a holy life around them and see what happens. You don't have to say much. Just live a holy life around them. You will shine like a bright star, and you will shine a bright light on their sin, even if you're not being a jerk about it. <coughs> so these people were ostracized because, simply because of their faith and the culture that prevailed around them. Now, during Nero's and other reigns, it was said that the Roman road leading up to the Colosseum was littered with crucified people, often Christians. We know that the Colosseums were created for prisoners to face wild beasts and gladiators and other sorts of sport and feat that would often, if most, if not all the time, lead to their death. And we know that we know from church history and outside religion, outside history of things that happened to the world, that Christians were slaughtered by the thousands under the reign of these tyrant emperors. To be a Christian not only meant to be exiled socially, but also to be on great trial physically. We also can read this in another way. The Gentile Christians were not only exiled from the local population, but they were also, thought, uh, they were also not thought too highly of by Jewish Christians. Remember, Jews and Greeks before the time of Christ did not get along. They hated each other. So much so that there is much attention given to Scripture about the relationship between Jew and Greek Christians, right? When, you know, the, the big mystery that was revealed to us from Ephesians and we see in other Gospels is that God has opened a way to the Gentiles and that there is co-equal, there is equal footing between the Jews and the Gentiles. But then even after that, there is much talk about how to deal with these interpersonal relationships with Jew and Greek Christians. Now, Peter, like Paul, gives much attention to breaking down these walls of hostilities and welcoming the stranger. Another aspect that relates to most of us today is that they are elect exiles of the dispersion because this is their temporary home. The word exile is someone who does not hold a particular citizenship in a place and is not given the same rights or privileges as citizens. They are generally thought of as an outsider. So while we live in this world, our true home is heaven. So there will always be a sense of Christians where we belong, but we don't belong. Where we're at home, but we're not at home. Now there is a comparison made in verses 1 and 2 that I mentioned earlier. Peter says to the exiles or foreigners, and then if we take one part of verse 1 and add it to verse 2, you get something like this. To the elect who are foreknown by God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit and the work of Jesus, grace and peace. Peter says, yes, you have lost your social standing in Rome. You may have lost your family. Yes, you may, uh, there may be some Jewish Christian holdouts who don't accept you in the same way that uh, I accept you, that you should be accepted. And yes, you are in your temporary home and you are a stranger. But also, you are chosen by God 
before the foundation of the world. Yes, you have all of these trials. Yes, you have all of these things working against you. <clears throat> but also, and most importantly, you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Before the world was set, he foreknew you. He loved you to the chosen, to the elect, who right now might be spread apart, who right now might be under trial, who right now might be facing great circumstances. Take heart. It is a wild and precarious world that we live in. But this is God's plan for us. This is God's plan for us. It is a wild and precarious world that we live in. We will not always be accepted. Our faith will always be tested. But we are in Christ, and Christ is God. And God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be sons and to be daughters. If that's all the information we had about God, it would at least give us the strength to follow him the rest of our days. Peter mentions three topics here, three topics of this elect dispersion, this elect foreknown, elect chosen people. And I want to I sort of break those down for you. So this is sort of the subpoints under uh, the encouragement. The first is the foreknown, the foreknown. Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I got a little excited a minute ago and I gave some of this away, but... Here you go, it's going to be still really wonderful for you. Foreknowledge is knowing things and events before they happen. In the biblical sense, this is God's knowledge of our salvation and redemption before the world was even created. The most encouraging truth that I know is this. We did not come to Christ by chance or by our own will. This is not the knowledge of God, as some would say, the knowledge of God. God knew when I would trust him, but I make the choice. This is the foreknowledge of God. God in his rich mercy secured and sealed me before the sin was before the first sin was ever committed by anyone on earth. God in his foreknowledge redeemed and rescued me before I needed redemption. Now you have, may have walked an aisle and prayed a prayer in a moment. Your faith was surely made manifest in real time on this earth, but it was secured in the foreknowing plan and action of a holy and sovereign God. Not only did he know he foreknow the people, that is us, but he foreknew the method, and that is Christ. God knew before the foundation of the world that he would kill his son for a people that would betray him, that would not deserve salvation, and that he was still going to save. <clears throat> now, I believe in free will. And there is a time to explain that again, as I think I've done sufficiently, and maybe you've forgotten, but I'll explain it again at another time. But do you know what I also believe that the Scripture teaches? That a faith where man chooses God is not a faith 
worth living. That a faith where a man chooses God is subsequently a faith that can be lost. If we can make the decision to follow God, we can make the decision to fall away from God. But if God chooses us, he redeems us, he saves us, he keeps us, and he will always bring us back to him until we die or he returns. I trust the Bible when it says those he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined, meaning before destined, before appointed. I trust the Bible that when it says that when we became elect or chosen before the foundation of the world, that was done by the power of God and not by the choice of man. And I wouldn't have it any other way. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot keep ourselves saved. That is the work of God. It can only be done by the sovereign. The sovereign. It can only be done by the supreme. The supreme ruler of the universe. (coughs) And yet in our sort of man-centralized salvation, we make ourselves the sovereign. We make ourselves the supreme. And what, first, and what Peter is reminding us in 1 Peter is that we are to have a Christocentric mentality where God is sovereign, where God is supreme. We ought to not have it any other way. We do not choose our king. Our king is not assigned to us. It was preordained, just as you did not choose this country, you did not choose the country you were born in. It was preordained. When you're born, you fall under the rule and the authority of the one who ordained it. There are the foreknown. The foreknown. From this we get the family. The family. The elect in verse 1 signifies so many important things. Not only that we are chosen and foreknown, but that we are also all chosen and foreknown. All believers are chosen and foreknown. What does that mean practically? It means that Peter and Bryce Holbrook were chosen and foreknown in the same manner, except the apostolic part. It means that you and that Christian that you admire, that you read their books, that you listen to their podcasts, you were chosen and foreknown in the same way. (laughs) And for this early audience, it means that Jew and Greek were chosen and foreknown to be the same. This would have been a massive revelation for new converts of Christianity because the Greeks were still being made to feel less and the Jews were historically God's chosen people. Now Peter is saying those chosen Jewish people and those dirty and debased Greeks have equal footing in the family of God through Christ. It makes me want to cry out and rejoice in joy. Think about how this would change our perspective if we took this as it is meant to be and applied it to our lives. There is not black, there's not white, there's not Latino, there's not Chinese, there is not Arabic Christians. There is just the family of God, all on the same footing. 
just from different ethnos, just from different ethnicities. There is no superhuman Christian. Your pastor is not a better Christian than than you. He has not been given some extra gift from God that you don't have. But he has been given salvation, and that salvation been made a part of the family of God. And one of the rewards of being a part of the family of God is the treasures of heaven. And the treasures of heaven include sanctification of his children. Imagine what that would do to your life if you believed that you could be what you think your pastor is. Imagine what it would do to your life if you believed that you could be what that person that you admire who writes those Christian books is. The person you admire who who has that podcast that you follow, that you love. That mom, that dad that you want to be like. Imagine how much your mentality would change if you saw salvation as a work equally for all people and sanctification in the same way. There are no superhuman Christians. There is the family of God Redeemed by Christ. If we, take this, if we take this as we should, the church would be, and often is, the most united front in this world. If we take this as we should, it should humble us tremendously to the, <coughs> to the knowledge that there are no we's and they's, but only us. Friends, be encouraged. That if you are a part of the family of God, you are no longer a stranger, you are no longer an exile, but you have the full rights of citizenship with God. And what that comes with is equally distributed to the family. No sort of heir, no sort of disputes in the will, right? We don't need to get an attorney involved to see who's got, who's got, who gets what. We get it all. And through faith and patience and endurance, we can tap into that. And I would say this, it may be oversimplifying it a little bit, but the only thing that is preventing you from being like the person that you want to be like is you. So whether it's Peter or your pastor, a friend or a family member, since we are in Christ, we are on the same path to growing in him with all the same tools and striving to the same goal. That leads me to one more thought, and I bet you didn't think I could get this much out of the first two verses of 1 Peter. I should have just broken down all the geographical issues with uh, this instead, right? Uh, And that's the faith, the faith. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience of Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of His blood. What is the family built upon? What is the truth of this family? What is their banner? Their faith is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are a foreknown family and unified under one prevailing thought, and that is this. That before the foundation of the world, God saw how everything would play out. To me, 
it's sort of like this. Have you ever been on YouTube or uh, Amazon uh, Music has it this way? And there's the thing called X-Ray. And you can look on Amazon Music, and as you cl- if you click on X-Ray, the lyrics to the song come up. And so the lyrics are on the page, right? So you're seeing them as the song comes up. But there's also this shadowing that follows the song, right? God foreknew, and this may be oversimplifying it, so if it is, don't like stone me afterwards. But God foreknew in this way, that everything was written, everything is on the page, but that time reveals how it happens. So time is like that, time is like that shadow that follows the word. It's already written. It's already out. But time shows what happens. So time is like that shadow that follows the word. So you can know what was written. God, before the foundation of the world, wrote it all out. Now, I know that presents some problems with you in your mind. And you can talk about it at MC. And here's some things you can talk about. If, if God wrote it all out, then what, how does free will? How does free will involve? Talk about free will a little bit at MC, guys. Uh, if God wrote it all out, what is my role? What is my role in that? I think those are good questions to ask. I have answers for those, but those are good questions to ask. God wrote it out before the foundation of the world. And he saw it, how it would play out. He knew it. it. He allowed it. He allowed it even. And in that text on the screen, it said, I'm going to create these people in perfect fellowship with me. I'm going to walk with them. And then not too long After I create them, they're going to walk away from me. And they're walking away from me. That's sin. It's going to lead to their death. And it's going to lead to the subsequent death of everyone to ever exist on this earth. That was written out. Do you know what was also written out? But I'm going to make a way for them because they will be my possession. They are my possession. I'm going to make a way for them. And so just as it was written out that sin would come into the world, just as it was written out what Adam and Eve would do, just as it was written out what we would do, it was also written out that God would slay his only son in order to bring about the redemption of mankind. It was always God's plan. It was always God's plan. Even before, as we would say, he needed a plan. And that through that death, through that burial, and through that resurrection, I'm also going to certify and stamp and seal life upon those who would belong to me as I'm writing it out before the foundation of the world. And so when you become a Christian, it's just something that's already on the screen. It's already been written. But just in time, that shadow goes across that moment of your life. Friends, the faith is built on that gospel. The faith is not built on some chaotic, some reactionary God who is hopeful that we do the right thing and desirous that we follow his will. It is built on a relentless, jealous, loving Father, who will not let his children escape his grasp. 
who, will, who would climb every mountain, who would swim every ocean to redeem and rescue his people. After all, he gave us the most precious gift. He gave up the most precious gift he could in his son. Can I point to you today one, one more thing that I thought was so profound and beautiful? The work of salvation in our lives is a Trinitarian work. Many of you know what the Trinity is, but some may not exactly. But it is this. We are a monotheistic religion. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. Mono meaning one and theistic coming from theos, which means God. One God. So I ask you, is there more, is there more gods than one? Is there more than one God? In how many persons does this one God exist? In three persons. And I'm going to answer the last one for you. Three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Honestly, I'm going to continue doing that for the rest of our lives, so I don't care how cultish it looks. (laughs) The orthodox doctrine of the Trinity affirms that God is one in essence and three in persons. God is one and God is three at the same time. Now, this is not a contradiction. It's a paradox. It's something that we cannot explain or understand because we have finite knowledge and wisdom and understanding. But it is something God has given us and is true and is real nevertheless. The way that he is one in essence is different than the way that he is three in persons. We might know that the Father loved us and that he has a plan for us. And we might know that Jesus died for us to save us from our sin. And we might know that the Holy Spirit is our helper. But what 1 Peter 1 and Ephesians 1 and other passages tells us is super important. That these are not three isolated works that work apart from each other in our salvation. But that the triune God is evident in every area of creation in our life and that is especially in salvation. Working together to accomplish what he has foreknown and forewritten that plan. <clears throat> Peter said that our salvation is a three-part work. That God the Father elected and foreknew us before the foundation of the world. That the Son brought, bought us with his, the sprinkling of his blood. Which for further reading is a, is a reference to Exodus 24. Uh, you can look at that if you're interested. Exodus 24, and that the Spirit sanctifies us. What a most gracious demonstration of the God three in one. What a spectacular display of his love and power in our lives. What God has done before the time in calling us, what Jesus did in the past in, and present in saving us, and then what the Spirit does in the present in making us more like Jesus. Friends, I want you to know if you've been taught any other way than what 1 Peter lays out today, you should reject you should reject that and get a lobotomy, a spiritual lobotomy. You should reject that and wash your brain clean of the mess that they taught you and accept nothing less than this sweet and powerful word of a forever caring, always present and eternally faithful, almighty God. So how does this apply? Because we are family, 
our job is to find a way to uh, our job is to find ways not to exclude people but to include them. Because we are a family, our job is to not find ways to exclude people but to include them. This means trusting people before they've earned it. Trusting people before they've earned it. Now, it doesn't mean getting abused by being too trusting, but it does mean trusting people before they've earned it. It means giving them time or giving time for God to work out their salvation as he has done for you. God works out salvation after all for all people in his time. He makes all things beautiful. We are to make several assumptions because we don't know definitively. Our first assumption is that if someone is here, that they want to be here and not that they're taking advantage of things. That's our first assumption. Our second assumption is that if someone says they are a Christian, that we assume that they're being honest with us, that they are a Christian. And our third assumption is that if God, the God of the universe, cares for anyone, he cares for all of us. If he cares for anyone, he cares for all of us. And that he will faithfully work out his salvation in everyone who calls upon his name. That means breaking down barriers to, people, to where people feel like they belong to the family of God and not have to work to belong to the church first and then the family of God. Friends, the church has done a terrible job at times in making people feel like they need to belong to the church first and the family of God. If someone is a part of the family of God, they are a part of the family of the local church, and there should be no hindrances to that. You need to see yourself not as a gatekeeper for the church. God is the gatekeeper for the church. So we need to leave that job primarily to God. Now, we are to be protective of our church. I'm highly protective of our church. We need to be protective of our church. We need to make sure that those who belong to the local church show fruit. We need to snuff out the wolves. But we can't operate under the assumption that anybody that comes in is a wolf first until we say that they're a sheep. Include, not exclude. Because we are God's family, that means we are to include and not exclude. And the last thing that I'm going to say today is because we are God's family, that means we hold the power to overcome this world. The Bible says we are more than conquerors. We ought to know that our faith is sure and assume that the same about ours and others is true. That our our salvation and our sanctification is something that is going to grow as we walk in faith. We ought to look at trials and troubles not as punishment from God, but as a preparation to receive a greater reward. The ones who are often most spoiled are the ones who receive everything that they've ever desired. The ones who, who realize the joy and the beauty of the reward are the ones who have had to face the lack of reward at least a few times in their lives. So our trials now are just a temporary training for the beauty and the glory that is to come. It means that faith does not 
trust in its own understanding, but faith wholly leans into God, who is who he is and what he has already accomplished, leading us to operate in this knowledge that the work of salvation is done in us, that it's done in others, and not by us and not by others, will lead us to trust in the power of the triune God of the universe. Who would have thought, right, in the first two verses of introduction that the Lord would have given us such heavy and deep truth? Friends, can I tell you, the time that I found this initial and lasting burst of peace in my walk with God was the time that I just said, I don't know every detail about how salvation works, but I know that God is the God of salvation, and I'm going to just give all of that to him. And I'm not even going to debate it. I'm not even going to debate it. I don't even want to debate it with you. If you don't think the same way I think, I'll give you why I believe that, but I don't even want to debate it anymore. When I was younger, I wanted to debate it all the time. I don't even want to debate it anymore because you're not going to convince me, and even if you could convince me, the peace that it gives me, I don't want to give up. I don't want to give up. I want to trust God. I want to know that God is in control. I want to believe that. And you might say it's naive. You might say it's um, immature. I don't know. I say it's the Bible. I say it's the truth of God. And I'm going to keep following it. And I hope that you do too. I don't think you have to think exactly like me. But I hope that you do. Because I think that it is the path to peace. It is the path to the, at least the greatest initial birth of peace, burst of peace in the Christian life. Pray with me today. God, we love you so much. I, I just overwhelmed this morning by the music, by your word. Just understand, just trying to understand and fathom how you could not spare your only son. God, we look for opportunities that if we know that people are going to mess us over, we look for opportunities to, to get ahead of it. We look for opportunities to get ourselves out of it, and yet you knew what was going to happen, and instead you doubled down and dug in. I can't fathom that. It's not within my realm of thinking. I'm just so grateful. I'm just so grateful. I'm so thankful. Lord, we trust you. We love you. We give you today. It's yours anyway. Help us not to try to steal it from you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.